Over the past couple of years, I've, I've been able to share with you a number of times, um, and some of you may be may remembering me talking about sheep uh, a few times. We've looked at the 23rd Psalm. Uh, Corey uh, told Kathy earlier today that, you know, he'd like me to do a sermon on giraffes. Um, that's going to have to wait. I didn't prepare anything. I don't know anything about giraffes anyway. That may be a sermon on, uh, on Noah, but I'll work on that, brother. I'll work on that. Uh, you may remember the last time I, I preached about sheep, we looked at that last verse in the 23rd Psalm. And uh, actually, we covered almost all of them. You know, we started with verse 3, and then I said, you know, I ought to look at this whole thing since it looks like I'll have an opportunity to preach every once in a while. This is uh, when we were in between pastors. So I, I preached on verse 3 first, and then I went back to verse 2. Then we did 4, 5, and 6. Well, I never did verse 1. So uh, we're going to do verse 1 this morning where David, uh, the guy who grew up as a shepherd but became Israel's greatest king, David captured in a single verse, that first verse, what he's going to talk about in the, uh, in the rest of the psalm. So it's really a summary Verse where he says simply, and you don't even have to turn there uh, to know what it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, that particular translation is nine words in the English. It's interesting, in the Hebrew, it's just four words. Let me give you a quick Hebrew lesson. The first word is Yahweh, or the Lord. It's the personal name of God uh, in the Old Testament. It's a, it means basically He is. It's a derivative of, of that word, uh, He is. Yahweh, the one who is. He always has been. He always will be. Second word is uh, a word that means... It's just in the Hebrew, it's ra'i or something like that. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. But uh, it means, is the one who continually shepherds me. So there's a lot in that one word. The third word is low or nothing. That's it, nothing. And the fourth word is... Shall I lack? Now, those last two words uh, in that verse, in, in uh, verse 1, uh, are often translated into our English translations, depending on which one you have. Uh, I have everything I need, or maybe I shall not want. Notice those words, need, and want. We know those aren't always the same thing, right? 
But I think both of those are legitimate translations of, of that word uh, that, that David uses here uh, in the Hebrew. You see, another way of saying nothing shall I lack is uh, I don't lack anything. And surely uh, anything would include, you, you would think, everything that you absolutely need. Uh, and and David is, that's what David is saying. So uh, he had everything he needed. But I also think, uh, I, I can see him saying that uh, he had everything he wanted too. I shall not want. Because surely, David, he was a wise man. Uh, surely he understood that concept that uh, when you're able to limit your wants to only those things that you absolutely need, then when you have everything you need, not only are you able to say, I have everything I need, I have everything that I want too. It's a good thing to be able to say, you know, all I want is all I need, and I know that that's plenty. That's plenty. Well, here in verse 1, what David is saying is because the Lord is the one who continually shepherds me, because the Lord is my shepherd, when it comes to everything, everything, and anything that I might need each and every day of my life, uh, I am assured, I know that I have everything that I need. Uh, there is nothing lacking because I know that the Lord is with me uh, all the time, and I know that He is continually shepherd me, shepherding me and meeting every need that I have. Likewise, in our lives, if the Lord is our shepherd, I think we can say, when it comes to everything that we absolutely need each and every day of our lives, we too can be assured that there will be nothing lacking because the Lord will be right there with us too, continually meeting every need that we have, continually shepherding us, and continually meeting every need that we have. Now David stands tall, in making this bold proclamation uh, here in this verse. Boy, everybody knows uh, about this verse. But this is not something that, you know, he's the only one who knew it in the Bible. We see it from cover to cover, all the way through the Bible. And this morning I want us to look at just uh, four examples in the Bible, beginning in in the book of Joshua. And I want you to flip back in your Bibles toward the front of your Bibles to the book of Joshua, which is the, the uh, sixth book in your Bible. You've got the Pentateuch, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. And then you've got Joshua. I want you to turn to Joshua uh, chapter 1. In Joshua chapter 1, this is... 
This is about 400 years before David wrote those words uh, of the 23rd Psalm, which was about 1,000 B.C. So about 1,400 B.C., the nation of Israel stood at the banks of the Jordan, and they'd been given an assignment to, to cross the Jordan. Uh, how are they going to cross it? Well, that, that, that was, God would take care of that. But they were to cross the Jordan. They were to go in and displace uh, the people who were in the land of Canaan and take possession of the, of the land. This is something, a task that they had chickened out on 40 years earlier. Because it was just too big, too big of a task uh, for them to to even attempt to un, uh, undertake, and so uh, you know they're a little bit nervous. In fact, probably a, uh, a little bit petrified at the prospect of what what God is wanting them to do. But in verse five of chapter one, look at what it says there, uh, where what God said to Joshua, uh, who is the leader of Israel. God said to him, No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Does that sound familiar? Well, he said this 1,400 years before Christ came. uh, God said to Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Then look at verse 6. Be strong and courageous because you're going to lead these people to inherit the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. And then he goes on and he you know, he kind of elaborates on that. And then in verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Now, it would have been perfectly understandable for um, Joshua to look at the 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 size of that task and just shriveled up with fear. It would, you know, we would have understand, understood it if, if, he, if he would have just uh, been petrified at the prospect of leading the people into the promised land and taking possession of the promised land from taking possession from people who weren't going to give it up without a fight. But God said, you can be strong and courageous and unafraid. The reason he could do that is for the Lord, your God, will be with you wherever you go. Wherever. Uh, Even in the scariest of circumstances. Even uh, in, in the face of the the fiercest of enemies. Wherever you go, uh, be strong and courageous and unafraid because I'm going to be right there with you. You see, when it came to uh, 
everything that he needed each and every day, uh, including those days of that, uh, carrying out that task, that huge task that God had given, had given him. God assured Joshua that he would make him equal to the task. God promised it. When God makes a promise, he keeps his promise. And Joshua learned whenever it came to everything he would ever need each and every day, there would be nothing lacking because the Lord would be with him. Okay, that was 1,400 uh, years before Christ. I want you to fast forward in your mind a couple of hundred years to about 1,200 B.C. and turn over in your Bibles to the next book. So flip through the pages of, of Joshua and go into Judges and go on to the, the, uh, the book of Judges, the sixth chapter, where God appeared to a guy by the name of Gideon. And at the task, at the time, this is about 200 years later, uh, the Midianites are oppressing Israel. They, Israel had taken possession of the land, kind of, but they are still being oppressed by the people who were there before them. And God gave Gideon the task of delivering uh, Israel from the cruel oppression at the hands of the uh, of the Midianites, and I, I love Gideon's response to uh, what God told him to do in verse fifteen. And this is the the John Lodat translation of what I think he said. He said, "Excuse me, I'm I'm serious. That's literally what he said in the in the Hebrew. Excuse me." And then he explained to God, you know, I'm from a nobody clan. When you, when you look at all the clans of Manasseh, which is just one of the 12 tribes of Israel, I, my clan is a nobody clan, and I'm a nobody in a nobody clan. You've got the wrong guy. But God said to him, look at what he said to him in verse 16. He said, simply, I will be with you. And that's all the difference that, that Gideon needed to carry out that huge responsibility, just as it was all the difference that Joshua needed in carrying out the big responsibility that God had given him. So Joshua, 1400 BC, Gideon, 1200 BC, and then David comes along a couple of hundred years uh, later and writes that beautiful psalm because the Lord is my shepherd uh, when it comes to everything I will ever need to carry out this responsibility as, as king of the nation that, that Joshua led before me and Gideon led before me. There's nothing lacking because I know that he's going to be right there with me, continually shepherding me and meeting every need that I have. Now I want you to fast forward in your Bibles to the New Testament and go to the Gospel of John, the, two, the 14th chapter. John chapter 
14. Okay, so David wrote about a thousand years before Christ. A thousand years later, a man appeared among those people that uh, Joshua and Gideon and David had led a long, long time before. Uh, His name was Yeshua, which is, by the way, a form of the name Joshua. And increasingly, more and more people are, are beginning to wonder you know, I wonder if this is, you know, this is that long-awaited son of David that we've been waiting for ever since David died. You see, after David died, it was all downhill. I mean, it, it, uh, the, David reigned during the height of Israel's, uh, glory as a nation. And then it was all downhill from them. And, and the people longed for another king like, like, like David. Well, Yeshua comes along and people are wondering, might this be the long-awaited, uh, the promised in, in Scripture, son of David? Well, over a course of about three and a half years, uh, Jesus gathered around him uh, a group of followers we know as disciples or learners, And at the end of that three-and-a-half-year period, he headed for Jerusalem, knowing full well that he was, when he got there, he was going to be arrested and executed like a common criminal. This was something that he felt that, that he believed that he needed to help prepare his disciples for ahead of time. And so he had a little talk with them before he was arrested. And in verse 1 of chapter 14 of the Gospel of John, Jesus said to them, I don't want you to let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Or another translation might be, you trust God, right? You can trust me, too. You trust God, Jesus said to the disciples. Yeah, they trusted God. They'd heard those stories about people like Joshua and and Gideon and, and David and how God made them strong and courageous and unafraid in the midst of, of just huge... Uh, responsibilities and and challenges in their lives. They stories like that help them to understand that they could trust God, that God is trustworthy. And Jesus said, You can trust me in the same way. You know, Jesus could have said, what you're fixing to go through is going to be such a, an absolute blow to you, it's going to knock you flat. It's going to be so devastating that it, it's going to be the worst thing that you've ever experienced in your life. But you trust God, you can trust me too, even in this circumstance. Well, within just a few hours, Jesus was arrested 
and he was executed like a common criminal. He was dead. He was buried. But on the third day, he rose from the dead. And he spent the next 40 days with the disciples, uh, preparing them for what was going to come later. But then he left again. But before he left, this time for heaven, he gave them a huge responsibility. And, and it wasn't to uh, go and lead the, uh, the nation in a battle against the Romans and take, take possession back of the, of a, the land and, you know, which is relatively a, a small piece of territory in an obscure corner of the Middle East. But this time it's to go into all the world, to go all over the planet, making disciples of people of all nations. A huge responsibility. But do you remember what he said to, to them? He said, surely I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Till the end of time. You can count on me being right there with you uh, every step of the way. David said, the Lord is my shepherd. And Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And what that means is... When we've joined his flock, when we've become his disciples by repenting of our sins and placing our faith and trust in Jesus to do what we, we can't do for ourselves, and that is to forgive us of our sins, to, to bring us alive spiritually with a life that makes this life full and meaningful and last forever and ever and ever. When we've joined Jesus's flock, then we can be assured that no matter what he asks us to do, and he, he actually doesn't ask us to do anything. He tells us to do stuff that we ought to obey. Whatever he tells us to do, whatever challenge we will ever face in this life, we can be assured there will be nothing lacking because he's going to be right there with us, continually shepherding us, as the good shepherd and meeting every need that we have. David knew that. Joshua knew that. Gideon knew that. The disciples knew that. And 32 years after Jesus went back to glory, the Apostle Paul knew that too. And I think about those words in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, where Paul declared, And my God will meet your every need according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You know, he didn't say that because... Uh, he had, he was one of those people who had all of his needs met on a silver platter. Uh, it wasn't like that at all. He said that in his letter to the Philippians. And I want you to turn over to, to the Philippians chapter four, because we're going to look at, at some other passages over there. 
He says that in four, chapter 4, verse 19. It's about uh, 62 A.D. About six years earlier, he wrote another letter uh, to the church in Corinth. From, interestingly enough, from Philippi. Uh, if it wasn't Philippi, it was somewhere in the Philippi uh, area of Macedonia. He was on his way from Ephesus, and he's going down to, to visit the church uh, in Corinth. But before he gets there, he, he, needs to, he wants to prepare them for his visit. So he writes 2 Corinthians. I want you to put a, put a pencil or a bookmark or bulletin or something in Philippians 4, because we're coming back to that, and just flip back a few pages to 2 Corinthians. Just a few pages. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where, where Paul uh, compares himself to some people who were claiming to be super apostles. Now, Paul was an apostle, right? Well, they were claiming to be super apostles. They were wanting to, uh, to undermine his any kind of influence that he might have in that church that he had started five or six years earlier. And in that letter to the Corinthians, in about, about six years before he wrote the, the, the letter to the Philippians, look at what he said beginning in verse 22 as he compares himself to these super apostles who really wanted to put an end to his ministry among the Corinthians. Verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? And this is where he says, you know, I'm out of my mind to even talk like this. But I'm more. I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night, or a night and a day, in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers or false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have gone, or I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked besides everything else. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak that I don't feel weak? Who's led into sin that I do not inwardly burn? And we think we got it rough sometimes. I mean, he'd been through the ringer. Well, this is about 56 that he wrote all this stuff that had happened to him up until that point. 
From this point on, he made his way down to, to Corinth. He spent about three months with them. And then he made his way to Jerusalem. Took him probably several months to get to Jerusalem where he was promptly arrested, thrown into jail, uh, not for a few days, but for two years. He spent in prison in Caesarea, uh, bringing, being brought out before the Roman governor on, uh, you know, a few occasions where he could, uh, I guess where the Roman, whenever the Roman governor wanted to, to hear what he had to say, he'd bring him out and talk before, he spoke before a couple of Roman governors and uh, King Agrippa. He appealed to the Roman Caesar because he was a Roman citizen, so they put him on a boat after spending two years in jail in Caesarea, uh, put on a boat to Rome. The boat uh, sinks. He's shipwrecked again. And uh, fortunately, you know, by God's protection, he saved, finally makes it to Rome. When he makes it to Rome, uh, he's put under house arrest, waits at least another couple of years under house arrest, chained 24 hours a day to a Roman guard that whole time. And it's at, at that time that he writes a number of letters, one of them to the, the church in Philippi, where he says, and my God will meet your every need according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. He said that because that's exactly what he had experienced for years and years and years of his life and ministry. And that's why he was able to say some other amazing things that he said in chapter 4 of Philippians. Look, look at verse 11, the second part of that verse, where Paul says, I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstance. That means whatever the circumstance. You imagine a circumstance, and some of you don't have to imagine uh, a difficult circumstance because you might find yourself in there, right, in, in such a circumstance right now. It didn't matter. Whatever the circumstance, I have learned to be content. You know how he learned it? He learned it in the school of hard knocks. Have, have you been there? That's how we learn some of life's most important lessons. We know that because of what he says in verse 12. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, I know what it is to be in need. Now, he's not saying here, uh, I have, I have an un, uh, there, there's times when I have unmet need. He's not saying that because he's already talked about, or he's fixing to talk about a God who meets all, all of our need. We don't have any unmet needs. What he says here is, I know what it is to be brought low. That's the word that he uses. To be brought low. Uh, some of us know that. 
Some of us know how to be brought low even uh, to the point where we hit rock bottom. Paul says, I know what it is to be brought low. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And again, again, he's not using that word want, which, which is our English translation, uh, this particular translation. Uh, he's not saying I have unmet, uh, unmet wants, because he really didn't. Literally, he's saying whether living with a lot or just having a little bit. Look at verse 13. He says, I can do all this. That is, be content in any and every situation through him who gives me strength. When it came to everything that he needed... Each and every day, whatever he was going going through, whatever was going on in his life, there was nothing lacking because he knew the Lord was right there with him, continually shepherding him and meeting every single need that he had. Reminds me of a man I heard about several years ago who said, that he had decided that when it came to, um, whenever he found himself in a particularly challenging situation or encountered any kind of difficulty or trial or temptation of any kind, he said it helped him to say out loud to himself, whenever he found himself in any of those circumstances, to simply say, for this, I have Jesus. Folks, if the Lord is your shepherd, um, when it comes to everything that you might need, whenever, whatever is going on in your life, there's nothing lacking because you can count on God being right there with you, continually shepherding you, meeting every need that you have. And that means that you too could say, whatever's going on in your life, for this I have Jesus. Unless you don't have Jesus. And if that's the case, we'd love to, visit with you this morning uh, during our time of invitation just a few minutes we're going to give you an opportunity uh, I'd love to help help you to understand how you can invite Jesus into your life and uh, have him to be there for you making all the difference in the world that you need him uh, to be Many of you have already made that decision. You've invited him into your life. He's, he's, a, he's a part of your life. But boy, you'd, you'd love to have that confidence that people like the Apostle Paul and David had uh, in the Lord. Well, 
let me just assure you, it takes time to get there. Okay, it's something that you learn. Let me tell you something about learning. Learning takes time. God is the best teacher there is. And he often uses the circumstances of life to teach us life's most important lessons. But if we're going to learn the lessons that God is trying to teach us, we've got to pay attention. Uh, Communing with him constantly, walking with him day by day, watching him moment by moment through every type of situation that we find ourselves in, meet every single need that we have in life. You see, contentment is an attitude. And I believe there's a, there's a, uh, uh, there's a relationship between the attitude that we have, the attitude of con- contentment, and our prayer life. I like how Oswald Chambers put it. He said, every time we pray, our horizon is altered. Our attitude to things is altered. Not sometimes, but every time. And that really is what makes it all so amazing. He says, the amazing thing is, that we don't pray more. This morning, you may need to simply make a commitment to pray more. And I believe when you do, uh, in time, in time, you'll reach that point where you have all the confidence in the world that when it comes to everything that you need, in this life, whatever's going on, there'll be nothing lacking because you can count on the Lord to be there, continually shepherding you and meeting every need that you have. Let's pray together.